Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is Todd Exenbaugh. Caleb, March Madness is this month. It is, and I'm looking forward to it. Let's hope the Buckeyes can do well. Hashtag Homer. Yes. We have a great episode for you today. Today, we are talking with renowned creativity expert Todd Henry. So there's a line that is in his bio that you read to me, and this is phenomenal. It says, basically, he is an arms dealer for the creative people. Yep. Arms dealer for the creative resolution. I Revolution. I am so obsessed with that line now that I don't think I can even go on, but I have to because the show must go on. So, Todd Henry, renowned creative consultant. Um, he, he works with all sorts of different companies, kind of helping them to supercharge their create their, their creative teams um, and author of the, the book that we are uh, talking with him about today called Herding Tigers. And so, super excited for this conversation. Great, great um, insight. Yep, this book, it's, it's a really, it's an interesting topic. Because, you know, most creativity yes. books are written about, you know, how can I become more creative? And Creativity Inc., yeah. all those different... A lot of books that he's written as right, well. Right, right. You know, Accidental right. Creative. But the, but the really interesting thing is, and he talks about this in the interview, is that he didn't really know of any resources for people who lead creativity people. And that's just really just something interesting is that he wrote this book to solve a problem that he encountered which is essentially what creativity is which is it's essentially what creativity is and so he writes this book herding tigers be the leader that creative people need you to and be. the cover may be the coolest thing about the book that's a cool tub that's a, a cool, cool cover. cover yep you'll have to go on to amazon and check that and see that pic now we also have our Learner's Corner Recommended Resource of the Week. ba 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 And we're keeping it simple this week. We want to recommend two things from Todd Henry because he's so good. We're going to recommend two podcasts that he does. He does the Accidental Creative Podcast and the Herding Tigers Podcast, which is based off a lot of the concepts in the book. And so we're going to help you learn more about Todd Henry. You're you're going to understand why we recommended these two podcasts from our conversation with him. And so without further ado, here's our conversation with Todd Henry. Well, welcome to the podcast, Todd Henry. We're so glad to have you on this morning. Thank you, Todd and Caleb. And Todd, this is going to be a little awkward because we'll have to uh, do the sort of like a, me, this Todd, that Todd. I don't know, but it's great to be on. Thank you. And then it's also confusing because I can't, we can't even use our initials, TH, because we're both, <laughs> this is going to be, this is going to be uh, interesting, but we're, we're going to be mental gymnastics. We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. We will figure it out as we go. Well, hey, Todd, just as we're jumping in, um, I have a question for you. What, why, why do people find it so difficult? You wrote this book called um, Herding Tigers. And, and, and it's about leading creative people. And so the, the thing that I, I was really curious about is why is it that people need a book written about leading creatives? Like why do people find it so hard to lead creative people? Well, a, co a couple of things. First of all, creative work is unlike really any other kind of work because um, – and by the way, we, we can get really um, surgical in how we define creative work, right? Really, if you're solving problems, you're doing creative work. So if you're in sales, if you're building a business, if you're in marketing – those are all creative jobs because you have to be creative. But there is something unique about designing, writing, doing client work, things of that nature 
So really all of what I'm saying applies to any kind of creative work, but um, there is something unique about doing work where you have to solve problems every day, where you basically have to build the bicycle as you're trying to ride it, which is what many of us do when we do creative work, because we're inventing not only new solutions for our clients, but often we're inventing the very methodology by which those solutions will be arrived at. Um, and we have to ramp it up and do it over and over and over again. And then adding to that complexity, a lot of people who are leading creative work are not traditionally trained as managers, right? They don't come up through the ranks like some sort of management development pro uh, program and then they get assigned to a team of creative people. You know, typically, it's somebody who came up through the ranks as a creative professional, as a create on demand professional, basically doing the work, doing the job. And then because they're really great at doing the job, they're put into a role where they're managing other people who are doing the job. Well, doing the work and leading the work are very different things, um, especially when you're doing creative work, um, because it's really easy to jump in, to get tactical and to do the work for your team instead of letting your team do the work and, and develop in their own skill set. So there are just some unique complexities and challenges involved in creative work. And frankly, I... You know, in, in many years of leading creative teams, I never found a resource that specifically spoke to me. Uh, and so all these years later, I'm like, OK, that's really I think that's something that that's a book that needs to be written. Somebody needs to help people who are responsible for leading creative people understand what is it creative people need from them to do their best work. And then how do you provide that in a systematic way so that they feel the uh, the the margin that they need, they feel the the stability that they need, and the, the predictability in the environment, but they also feel challenged and pushed and given permission to take risks and all of those kinds of things. Right, uh, and and with that, it's also interesting because I guess as I'm thinking about it, um, creative, you're you're totally right in that creative people typically are are put in positions they are because of how good they are at what they do. So yeah, I, I totally get that. What you say that in, in the book that. The two things creative people need are stability and challenges. Why, why is that so? Well, creative work is inherently unstable. Right? I mean, we're basically dealing with chaos. We're wrestling ambiguity and chaos into something meaningful, concrete, um, and useful for our clients or for our organization. And so there's a lot of instability involved just in the work itself. So in order to be able to tackle that instability, creative people need a clear playing field. They need clear boundaries. They need clear expectations. So they need to understand what you expect of them, when you expect it, why you expect it, uh, and, and have a very uh, firm grasp on what you want from them and when you want it. And you have to, as a leader, you have to establish those expectations so that they aren't constantly shifting. You know, some leaders are less than clear about their expectations because they want to leave some room, some wiggle room in case the political winds shift in the organization or in case the client changes their mind or in case their boss's boss weighs in at the last minute. And that's not helpful for creative people. As, as a leader of a team, you have to be very clear about your expectations of the team so that they can do the messy creative work necessary uh, to deliver great results. But you also have to protect them. They need to know that you are going to step in and you're going to guard and defend their time and attention from the chaos of the organization uh, so that they're not constantly bouncing from shiny object to shiny object, uh, meeting to meeting, task to task, email to email. But they have the space they need to be able to do the deep creative work that they're accountable for. So that's really what stability is about. But they also need challenge. They also need to be pushed. They need to be uh, given permission to take risks. They need to be uh, pushed to, ch to sharpen their craft and to, uh, to go beyond what they think they're capable of. 
And this is a this is a unique uh, thing that we have to wrestle with as leaders because as you push your team, as you challenge them, as you uh, you know encourage them to to take risks and try new things and sharpen their craft, you're inherently going to destabilize the organization, right? Because you're pushing them out into the nether regions, into the the the, the um, you're out of their comfort zone and out into places they've not been before. So that's going to create instability. So as you challenge them, you destabilize the organization. Well, then as you stabilize the organization, you tend to decrease the amount of challenge. So as a leader. We have to keep our finger on the pulse of our team, and we have to understand not just on a team level, but on an individual level, what people need from us in order to thrive. And so some people need a higher degree of stability than other people in order to feel like they can produce their best work. Great. You need to understand that as a leader, because if they don't have that stability, they're going to feel lost. They're going to feel uh, they're, they're going to grow uh, over time. They're going to start to feel like um, they, that you don't care about them. They're going to grow angry uh, at you because they don't have what you're not giving them what they need to do their best work. Some people need a higher degree of challenge. And if you don't give it to them, they're going to start to feel bored or they're going to feel stuck and they're going to start seeking better horizons. So if you want to not only produce great work, but retain talented people, you need to keep your finger on the pulse of stability and challenge and make sure you're dialing each in for the individuals on your team. You know, just to, so let's get, let's get really practical for a second. You know, what would be one or two things that you, that, you know, someone who's leading creative people can do to create that sense of stability in their team? Well, one thing that really stability at the, at the heart of it really all comes down to trust, right? Do I trust you as my leader to have my best interests in heart or do I believe that you are going to sell me out and throw me under the bus for your own career or for the, the needs of the organization or the client? And so, um, yes, we all have work to do. Yes, we all have to deliver great results in order to keep our, our job and keep our clients. Absolutely. No question. Uh, but it all comes down to, do I believe, do I believe you when you say that you have my best interests at heart? And there are all kinds of little ways, little things that we do as leaders to forfeit trust. You know, most of us aren't overtly lying to our team. Uh, we're not, you know, making promises that we absolutely know that we can't keep just in order to gain something in the short term. Most of us aren't doing that. We're blowing trust in little ways. Um, one thing that leaders do that forfeits trust in an unknowing way is something I call declaring undeclarables. So we make short-term promises to our team that we think we're going to be able to deliver on, but we really have no control over whether we can deliver on it. So for example, if you work this Saturday, uh, because we were you know, really running tight against our deadline, I'm going to give you next Friday off. And then next Friday comes around and says, oh, you know what? Another project came up. I'm sorry. I'm going to need you to work Friday, but I'm going to give you next Thursday off, right? And we do little things like this and we think it's no big deal, but it is a big deal because each of those little breaches of trust accumulate to the point that you know something happens at the end of a project it's you know tight timeline we're getting getting to the end of it and we have a big client presentation the next day and suddenly the entire team devolves and, and like blows up and, and we're like what happened i mean nothing overtly happened but it was all the little accumulations of breaches of trust over time that forfeited our team's ability to do the work they need to do at the moment we need them to take a risk um you know we tend to think about trust kind of like a bank account. You know, you put a little bit in, you can take a little bit out and it's fine as long as you keep a positive balance. But the reality is trust is more like a water balloon. You, know, you fill it up, you fill it up and you puncture it one time, even in a small way and you begin to lose it everywhere. And I think that's a misunderstanding we have about trust as leaders. So as leaders, we have to be very careful 
about the little interactions we make. Every single promise that we make to our team, every single directive that we give them, uh, every single time that we choose to ask them to do something that we know is going to be more than they can handle, but we're doing it because our boss's boss wants it and we're trying to cover our own rear as a leader. Um, all of these things accumulate over time to the point that our team feels like the environment isn't stable. They can't trust us and uh, we won't have what we need from them in those crucial moments. And then I guess moving to the other side of leading creatives, what's one or two things that creative leaders can do to challenge their teams? Yeah, so I would say challenge is really about understanding your team and pushing them to operate, to function in their core competence um, and, and really pushing them to take risks in the area where they tend to be naturally motivated. So you have to understand them. You have to coach them up. And you have to push them to be better than they can think they can be. So one of the interviews I did in the course of the book was with a guy named David Weiser. And David is a uh, hiring consultant to companies. He helps them hire CMOs, so chief marketing officers, so really high-level talent he's looking for. And he said one of the, the problems that he's encountered over time with retention is that people don't understand the natural motivational archetype of the people on their team. So instead of um, – you know, instead of uh, understanding what really naturally motivates people and then trying to figure out ways of building a portfolio of work that align with that natural uh, motivational archetype, uh, they just throw people into roles because they're talented, because they have a great resume. And this is a recipe for disaster. He said there are primarily wow. three motivational archetypes that we have to pay attention to. The first one is what he calls the builder. And the builder is all about wide open spaces. The builder loves you know, blank canvases, you know, we've got a huge opportunity here. We have no idea what to do. That is the builder's sweet spot. They love to come in and build things from scratch and they're great at it. Uh, the second profile is the fixer and the fixer is primarily obsessed with solving problems. They want to come in and solve a problem. And if there isn't a problem to solve, they will break things just so that they have something to fix, right? That's what they do. So if you put a fixer in a role where they're trying to manage something that's pretty already pretty well, you know, it's humming along. They just need somebody to manage it. Uh, they're going to start breaking things just so that they can have something to fix. That's what a fixer does. And then the third profile is the optimizer. And the optimizer is primarily obsessed with squeezing as much efficiency as possible out of whatever system is there. So they're really great at taking um, you know, a, a team that's working pretty well and squeezing the maximum amount of efficiency out of that team or taking a system and tweaking it so that you're getting more out of the system. That's what the optimizer does. Well, if you put an optimizer in a role where they're, they're where you really need a builder. So you put them in a place where it's like, okay, we have this big entrepreneurial initiative. We need you to go out, figure out what our vision is, figure out what, what we need to build, you know, how we're going to fill this white space, how we're going to meet the needs of our clients. They're going to be paralyzed. I mean, they could probably do it because they're competent, but they're not. They're they're going to come to work every day absolutely terrified, looking for something to optimize because that's what they do best. If you put a builder in a role that's where really an optimizer is required, they're going to start blowing things up and saying, "Why are we doing that? That makes no sense. Let's go over here. Let's do this thing over here." Um, that's what a builder does because that's what they're wired for. And the same with a fixer; they'll start breaking things just to fix them. So we have to understand how our team is motivated. And, you know, if our team, if, if a builder isn't feeling challenged, it could be because you have them in a role where largely they're doing optimizer types of work. 
You know, and so they they don't feel like they're being pushed to be able to do the things that they're wired to do. If you if an optimizer isn't feeling challenged, it could be because they feel overwhelmed because you've put them in a role where you're asking them to build things, but that's not really what they're motivated by, and so they're not really able to put themselves fully into it. Instead, they feel kind of paralyzed. They really don't know what they're doing. They're not challenged. They're just overwhelmed. So we have to understand what motivates the people in our team. And then we have to, now we don't all get to do work that we only love to do, right? Like we all have to do things we don't want to do as part of our job, our portfolio, but we have, we have to pay attention to the natural motivational archetypes of our team. And then if we want them to feel alive and challenged and feel a degree of stability about their work, we have to try to align them around work that is naturally consistent with their motivational archetype. And the better we do that, the more we're going to get out of our team, the more challenged they're going to feel, and ultimately the better work we're going to do as an organization. And that's along the lines of what I was, just while you were talking, I had this, this idea is, don't we all have to, though, be able to play kind of as a creative in each of those roles? And so I guess the question is, um, as a as a leader, then who's who's leading people like this? Is it is it a thing where you know I'm, I'm catering now constantly to to what I know they're best at, and I'm switching them onto projects where I know like, hey, this is something that totally needs created from scratch. Hey, this is something that is broken and needs fixed, or hey, this is something that it's just not functioning up to its potential. Or <laughs> is this where is this where the real challenge comes in, where we're where we're kind of working to 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 help people to to be able to grow and challenge them in new ways like how like what would you say to that yeah i mean i would say so you you know projects have life cycles right so you have an early stage project where you need a lot of churn and a lot of iteration and a lot of what are we going to do and what's it going to be a lot of idea generation and all of that so you know, if you have someone who is largely involved in doing production work which is kind of more at the back end of the of the project, um, but they happen to be a builder by nature. Uh, but the but the majority of the portfolio of their work is at the back end of a project where really what you're doing is you're kind of tweaking and optimizing the project. Well, that could be a real problem. Is there a way that you could give them uh, as a bigger portfolio of their work, work that is closer to the beginning of a project, closer to the tilling the ground kinds of areas of, of work? Um, or you know, if you have a fixer in your organization, and, you know, they're basically just kind of doing the same work as everybody else. But you know that there are some problems in your organization that need to be fixed or need to be solved. Can you give them a couple of projects to work on? I'm not talking about completely shifting their portfolio of work because they were hired to do a job and we all have to do things you know, that we aren't naturally motivated to do. But is there a way that you can give them maybe a couple of projects as part of their portfolio to help them have something they're working on that will – uh, you know, help them feel challenged and, and sort of keep them alive creatively. So, um, you know, I, I think it's really a matter of just recognizing your team and their natural motivation and recognizing their the consistency of their portfolio of work and just, you know, trying to figure out a way that you can align some of their finite focus, assets, time and energy against work that is more naturally consistent with who they are and how they're wired. You know, Todd, another thing that you talk about in the book is, you know, making the shift from, you know, doing the work as a creative to, you know, leading creatives. And you say that there's some mind shifts that have to happen in order for that to occur. Can you just give us a couple of mind shifts that, you know, creative leaders will need to make? Yeah. So this is you know, really kind of the core of the book. The whole thing hinges on this 
transition that we have to make from a maker mindset to a manager mindset. Our entire career as a creative pro is a one giant setup. It is. It really is like our entire career is like Lucy with the football with Charlie Brown, right? Just waiting to pull it away because for the entire first part of your career, the better you are at doing the work, at controlling the work and making it great and using your talents to make it great, the better you are at that, the more money you're going to make, the more you're going to get promoted, uh, you're going to have more responsibility, the more acclaim you will earn. And so what you really learn early in your career is the better I am at controlling the work, the more successful I will be. The problem is we all reach a point in our career, we cross a line, we get promoted to manager where if we continue that same mindset of control, our effectiveness will decrease, not increase. Because as a leader of creative people, we cannot lead by control. If we do, if we step in and we control the work and we do the work for our team, our team's capacity will never scale beyond our own personal ability and capacity. And our team won't grow. And so as a result, we will not be able to tackle new and more challenging work. We have to transition from a mindset of control to a mindset of influence, meaning we're going to establish rails. We're going to establish a leadership philosophy. We're going to help our team understand how we make decisions so that they can make decisions without us present. Um, and as we make that transition from control to influence, there's a tremendous amount of insecurity involved because for our entire career, we have been defined by the work that we do. And now we're defined by the work that our team does in many ways, but we have little control over the work that our team does. We have a lot of influence on it. But because we're not doing the work, we're not making every decision, um, it can create a tremendous amount of insecurity for us as leaders. And so that really is kind of the first transition that we have to make is from a, a mindset of control to a mindset of influence. I am going to I believe that a, a, the definition of a, a great leader of creative people is a great leader of creative people accomplishes the work, which, by the way, is where most people put a period. They accomplish the work. Great. Done. But that's not the end of the definition. Accomplishes the work while developing the team to tackle new and more challenging work. Your job as a leader is not just to get the work done. Your job as a leader is to develop your team to be able to tackle new and more challenging work. Now, I would say, okay, are there exceptions to that? Of course. If you're leading your team into battle and there are bullets flying everywhere, okay, your job is to accomplish the mission, right? <laughs> like, uh, listen, right. when, li when life right. and death is on the line, then okay, we'll, we'll call an exception there. Get the work done, right? Um, but for the most part, we don't have to encounter those situations. For the most part, we are trying to develop a team that can take on new and more challenging work in the future. And if we're stepping in and making every decision for them, they're not going to be developed to the point where they can do that. So that's the first transition. The second tra a second transition I would say we have to make is the transition from uh, peer to coach. And we touched on this a little bit a little bit ago, but you know, the, one of the challenges for especially new leaders of creative people is they have been peers with the people they are now leading, and so you know they would have conversations about the organization and how unfair things are, and this particular client is such a pain in the rear, and all of these kinds of things. These little conversations that would happen over coffee or around the water cooler. I don't even know if there are water coolers anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like you know, sort of in those more casual environments. Um, you know, people would have these kinds of conversations, uh, but you can't have those conversations anymore. You, know, you have to create a bit of distance between you and the team, and you have to transition from peer to coach. A, a peer encourages you. A peer says, here's what's great about you. Here's what I like about you. 
But a coach is willing to call out hard truths. A, a coach is willing to help people identify their strengths and their weaknesses. And a coach um, doesn't play the game for you, but a coach helps you play the game to the best of your ability. So you have to be willing to speak uncomfortable truths to people who were once your friends, your peers, and who you used to kind of you know commiserate with. You can't do that anymore. You have to distance yourself and you have to transition to a coaching role, which means your job is now no longer to do the work, but to help the people on your team bring the best of who they are to what they do, which means speaking difficult truths to people from time to time. Right. What, in the book, it talks about uh, white space and, and kind of creating and then actually, um, as the leader, defending white space for, um, for the creatives that you're leading. How can someone help to create and then defend more white space for, um, for the creatives that they lead? Yeah, so I think a couple of things. First of all, as a leader, um, and this is going to sound like the most obvious advice in the world, and yet nobody follows it. Um, can we please stop copying every single person on every single email that we send to the organization? Yeah, and we do that. Why do we do that? We do that to cover our own rear. We do that because we think, oh, well, you know, in case this person needs to know about this, I'm going to copy them on the email just so that they have it in their records um, so that I'm covered in the event that they say they didn't know about this. Well, that doesn't help your team because what happens? People start ignoring you. It's like the the athletic coach that just yells all the time. You know, just constantly yell, yeah. And what happens? The team starts tuning the coach out. The team doesn't listen anymore because, you know, like nobody wants to just be yelled at all the time. There's no contrast there. And so you only you should only put things in front of your team that your team needs to know right now. So if if you get an email from me, it's because I you absolutely need to be aware of this instead of, you know, three weeks later, somebody saying, well, I didn't know about this. Well, what do you mean? You were like the 32nd person copied on that email I sent you know, three weeks ago. Um, that, that's not helpful to your team because every time they get an email, they're asking, what do I need to do about this? And if the answer is nothing enough times in a row, they're going to start ignoring or just skimming your email and you're not going to get the best out of them. So that's that's one thing. We need to start co uh, stop copying everyone on every single email. A, a second very simple tactic, and again, sounds super obvious, but we don't do it. We need to have necessary meetings with necessary people. I would encourage everyone listening to this, if you're responsible for an organization, to look at your current meeting schedule and ask which of these meetings should go away immediately. They might be good meetings or maybe they serve the purpose at one point. The problem is meetings very rarely go away. They just get added onto the calendar, right? So we set a weekly recurring meeting that's really effective for three months or six months or nine months. And because it was effective once, we continue to have that recurring meeting every week. And it's a very, very frustrating dynamic for your team because it only causes them to have to bounce from you know, uh, meeting to meeting and obligation to obligation. They don't have the deep work time that they need to be able to produce their best work. So what needs to go away on your calendar? And only invite people to meetings who have something to contribute to that meeting or for whom that meeting is absolutely essential for the work, the creative work that they're required to do. Uh, I interviewed a copywriter named Ali uh, when I was writing the book, and she said, I would go to these uh, sessions where we're writing content emails for a client. 
And really two of us, two or three of us were responsible for writing the content, but there were 16 people in the room, all of whom tried to get their input into what was going to go into the email. And every single one of them would offer something they think needs to go in the email. And the reality is this is like a four or 500 word email. There's no way we're going to get like maybe one or two people's ideas into this. But there were like 16 people in there. And because they were there, they felt like they had to offer something. And it just wasn't helpful at all. So think about how you're structuring your meetings and think about who's accountable for what and think about how you can trim and prune your meetings and also the invitee list so only essential people are there. And then finally, the final strategy as regards uh, as, as with regards to protecting time and attention is I encourage you to build buffers into your day. Build large blocks of time into your day where your team can have predictable dedicated time to do creative work. One organization that I work with established what they called no-fly zone time, which was predictable time between 11 o'clock a.m. and 1 o'clock p.m. every single day where you were under organizational mandate not to interrupt someone unless they give you permission to do so. Two hours of predictable, deep, creative work time every single day of the week. Now, for some organizations, this would absolutely blow their mind because people are trying to do work 20 minutes at a time in between the cracks and crevices of their already busy meeting schedule. How can you build buffer time into your team's life so that they have the space, a predictable space to do their work? So if they're in a meeting, they think, well, at least I have between 11 and 1, or at least I have between 2 and 4, or at least I have you know, this predictable time every single day or several times a week or whatever works for your rhythm. The other thing is buffers at the beginning and end of the day. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but oftentimes, you know, it is out of bed, in the car, to work, rush right into a meeting, right? Meetings all morning, uh, maybe a little bit of time in the afternoon, meetings at the end of the day, rushing out of the meeting, getting in the car, going straight to rush hour traffic to, to get home. This is not a recipe for bringing your best to work. So can you build a buffer at the beginning of your day and say, listen, we're not going to have any meetings before 10 a.m. So people have a chance to ramp up into their day. And then we're not going to have meetings at the very end of the day so that we're rushing to a conclusion. You know, well, we have to have an idea, so let's come to a conclusion. That's not the best time to have a meeting at the very end of the day when people are really thinking about, like, if I left five minutes ago, I would beat rush hour traffic. But I think right now I'm probably going to be stuck for a half hour, right? Not the best time. So can you think about how to build buffers into the beginning and end of your day as well so that you're not uh, rushing your team into and out of their commitments? You know, another thing that, you talk about in the book is the idea of how brains brainstorming, how it's currently done is ineffective. And that just kind of, you know, I think that's something that most people think brainstorming, this is going to help us fuel creativity, but you say that it isn't, and you kind of offer an alternative solution. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of research uh, showing that people are actually more creatively productive on their own than they are in a group setting. And this has to do with a lot of things, social pressure and uh, you know inhibitions and all kinds of things that uh, limit our willingness to offer up ideas in meetings. But one of the dynamics that came out in the course of my research was um, offered up by a handful of people, but specifically by a creative director who called it the, the dilemma of fast twitch and slow twitch people. 
The problem is when you get into a brainstorming meeting, you have all kinds of people who are wired to throw out 50 ideas in the first 30 seconds, right? So I said, boom, 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 boom. What about this? What if we did that? What is it? You know, and so you have a couple of people in the room monopolizing the conversation. And maybe you have 30 minutes or 45 minutes to try to get to an idea. So you've got all of these ideas on the board largely coming from a handful of people. Meanwhile, there are slow twitch people in the room who are also, by the way, very deeply creative people, very capable people sitting there thinking about the problem, mulling over the problem, you know, trying to come to some resolution or some sort of idea that they think would be valuable to the group. And then you leave the meeting and then the next day that slow twitch person emails you and says, hey, what if we try this? Sorry, we've already come to the conclusion. It's too late. That's a brilliant idea, right? Two or three days later, but it's not helpful because we've already come to a conclusion. So you're not getting the best out of all of your team members. You're only getting the best out of the handful of people who are naturally wired for that kind of brainstorming, popcorning environment. So what I recommend in the book is what if instead you still have the group brainstorming session, but instead a couple of days ahead of time, you assign homework. You say, here's the problem we're going to be working on. I want you to be thinking about this problem. I want you to come to the meeting with a couple of ideas that you think are, are decent ideas that we could possibly build on as a team. So what you're doing is you're giving the slow twitch people a couple of days to think about the problem, to really sort of mull it over and try to come to what they think might be a couple of good ideas for the team. And the fast twitch people might be generating ideas as they're walking into the meeting, right? It might be like the way that they're naturally wired. And that's okay. But what you're doing is you're leveling the playing field. And when you get into the meeting, you can say, okay, let's talk about all of the ideas you guys brought to the table. Instead of, hey, who has ideas, right? Here's the problem. Who has ideas? Um, instead, you're saying, all right, let's talk about the ideas you've already been thinking about for a couple of days. And then you get a couple of ideas out on the board from everyone. And then you can have a, a a conversation based upon everyone's strengths, everyone's inputs, not just the people who are the loudest and the fastest, uh, fastest twitch people, which is what often happens in most brainstorming sessions. So you're really leveraging the creative capacity of your full team, not just the handful of people on your team who are naturally wired for those more sort of extroverted um, sort of popcorning brainstorming methods. And essentially it, what it's, what it's really doing is, is it's, creating a, a space for the best idea to win, um, which is what I love. Uh, I love about that. Um, That's right. What, what do you do to help your team sharpen their creativity? Uh, as you're kind of leading them, um, you know, there's, there's tons of stuff written about how um, people can be more creative, but as you're leading them, what do you do to help them to sharpen their, their creativity? Yeah. So one, um, one creative director that I interviewed in the course of writing the book said that one thing he does is he over indexes on everything. So he, um, listens to podcasts. He's reading constantly. He's looking for stimulus constantly that he can funnel to his team, especially as it relates to the work that he knows they're going to be doing over the next handful of months. So he almost plays librarian or curator for his team and he's funneling things to them and saying, Hey, Look at what this person is doing in a completely different field. How might we apply these principles or these ideas or this methodology to the work that we're going to do for such and such client in a couple of weeks? What do you guys think about this? Right. So what he's doing, he's not solving the problem for them and he's not telling them, here's how you should think about this project. But instead, he's. He's pushing them to think in new ways. He's pushing them into what Stephen Johnson, borrowing a term from evolutionary biology, calls it uh, exploring the adjacent possible. 
right? So he's out there looking in the environment around the work that they're doing and pushing them to think about and play with and combine uh, dots in the environment in new ways and to experiment and to try new things and to ask questions. And so that's one of the ways we can certainly do it is by paying attention, getting ahead of our team, paying attention to what's going on, then planting seeds and sort of connecting dots for them. Uh, maybe that they're not, they don't have the bandwidth to connect themselves or that they're not uh, necessarily uh, inclined to connect themselves because they're not really out there in the same way that you are. It's one of the advantages you have as a leader is you know what's coming up. So you can get out ahead of your team. You can begin pushing them to think in certain ways by funneling resources to them that help them get outside of their creative ruts and their comfort zone. You know, Todd, just as we're getting ready to wrap up, we always have a few questions that we just love to ask each of our guests. And the first one is, you know, what is one thing that you've started doing recently that has helped you a lot, either personally or professionally? So I have uh, these on my iPad now. I used to do it in notebooks, but I have these what I call day sheets that I've been using for about a year now. I don't know if that qualifies as recent, but um, basically it has a space on there for um, each of my dailies because I have daily practices that I engage in every single day. Um, where I can mark off and track my dailies every day. It has a space on there where I can do a time bar of my day. And this is a practice I learned from Mike Rohde from Rohde Design, um, where basically I can map out the hours of my day and all of the commitments that I'm I'm going to have to engage in that day and also see all of the open white space on my calendar and I can actually time block. So if I'm working on a book, I can allocate time to working on the book. If I have a client meeting, I can allocate time for thinking about that meeting ahead of ahead of time so that I'm bringing something valuable to the client. Um, so that's, you know, that's one element of it. And then I have a space on there every day for the high for the day, the low for the day and the learning for the day, because I like to sort of think about each of those things at the end of each day. What was my high today? What was my low today? And what did I learn today? And then, um, there's also a space for me to capture what I studied. So I write down the book or whatever resources I, I happen to study or experience that day. And maybe a couple of things that I learned from them. So that practice has really helped me a lot because, I can go back and look at patterns and if I see, oh, I'm actually, you know, something's not quite working or whatever, well, let me go back and see what happened on those days because I keep a log of everything I do as well on those sheets. Um, let me go back and see what happened. Oh, I, you know, I wasn't getting much sleep that week. That's interesting. So I wasn't producing my best work or, um, oh, yeah, we had a really busy week uh, in my personal life. We had a lot of ball games or something with our kids, right, or something. So I was a little bit distracted and traveling or whatever. Um, so it just really helps me to identify patterns and also to kind of go back and look and see what's working and what's not. So that's been something that's really helped me a lot. How do you learn the best? Like what's your ideal way of learning? Uh, I love to read, but frankly, I learn the best from audiobooks. Um, I take long walks every day. At least I, I, I was up until I, I think I recently tore my ACL. I don't know. We'll see. I'm going to get checked out uh, in, in about a week. I uh, tore my ACL playing basketball. Uh-oh. Um, so I'm not doing a lot of walking right now. But um, I uh, – I take long walks and on those long walks through the middle of the day, typically about five miles in the middle of the day, um, gives me a chance to listen to about an hour and a half of an audio book and, uh, you know, listening on double speed that, you know, and a lot of audio books are seven to 10 hours long. So I can get through an audio book in a week. Um, and it, it really gives me a chance not just to listen to the audio book, but also to process it and think about it. So a lot of times I'll walk, you know, half of my walk, I'll listen and then half of the walk, I'll think about what I was listening to and just sort of meditate on it on the way back. So that's um, probably the best way for me to learn. 
Is there a specific reason why you chose like in the midday? Is it just, you know, it's the most convenient time or if you found that like is actually like the best time for you to learn during that time? Yeah, that's the best time for me, um, for sure, because, you know, my, in the morning I try to get all my writing done. If I'm if I'm working on a, a writing project, a book or some client work or something, I, I will get all of that done in the morning. And most of my deep creative work happens in the morning, um, creating podcasts. We've had podcasts for 11 years now, so I've had to figure out a rhythm or 12 years. Uh, I had to figure out a rhythm to help me you know, keep that podcast going, you know, from a content perspective and a production perspective. So um, most of my deep creative work happens in the morning and then I break and I walk and sometimes I'll walk someplace and have lunch. Um, you know, I'll walk to the gym and kind of work out and then walk back. But, um, you know, typically it's about five miles, two and a half miles there, two and a half miles back. And, um, that just is a nice break in my day. And I come back in the afternoon and I'm, I'm recharged and ready to tackle whatever needs to happen in the afternoon, knowing that I've, I have my deep creative work out of the way for the day. Great. And one final question that we want to ask is what are you learning right now? So I've been reading the book principles by Ray Dalio and, um, I've been reading it for a long time, reading it in little chunks. And one of the things that has fascinated me about this book is his concept of building a machine. I don't know if you guys have encountered this concept yet, but, um, he, he talks about, you know, we all have goals in our life and we have a place where we are and we have problems that we're encountering. He says, pro, you know, pro, uh, pain plus reflection equals progress. So he said, when you experience pain in your life, uh, and you're, you're encountering an obstacle, you need to build a machine to help you get through that obstacle or get around that obstacle and get to your goal. And I'd never thought about it that way before. I mean, even though I've been you know, building businesses and whatnot for years and years, I never thought about it in terms of building a machine. But he says, you know, there is a machine that can help you accomplish your goal. Uh, it might mean bringing people in to fill certain functions if you're not good at those things. It might mean you learning new skills to be able to, to perform as part of that machine. But there is a machine that can get you from point A to point B. And so it's been helpful to me to step back and think about what is the machine that I, I have built and where where is it breaking down and where do I need to maybe bring somebody else in to fill roles that I'm not filling very well uh, in order to make the machine function in a more healthy way. So that's something that I've been learning. I mean, a very specific thing from that book, but there are many other things in the book principles that I would encourage people to check out as well. Great. Well, Todd, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. If people want to learn more from you or find uh, your book, Hurting Tigers, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, my personal site is ToddHenry.com, and you can get to anything I do from there. Also, the Accidental Creative Podcast, again, it's been around for about 12 years. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and Todd Henry on most social networks. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Caleb, what was your takeaway from Todd Henry? By the way, he has the best first name and initial set of anybody we've ever interviewed. Just saying. I have, I have a couple takeaways from it. One was whenever he was talking about the three different types of creative people. And, you know, he talked about um, the builder and I forget, what was the second it one? Was the, so there was the builder, the optimizer, and the fixer. Yeah, and the fixer. And what really stood out to me was just seeing myself because, um, you know, I'm an optimizer. He is de <laughs> Caleb is definitely an optimizer. I, I love to get the most out of everything. I love to be efficient. I love to maximize my time and everything and just gaining that self-awareness and understanding that you need different people for different pro or different not even for necessarily different projects but for different stages of different projects that was what was huge to me was thinking about how he talked in there about how when you're leading creatives and you you know you have people who are motivated differently so either you have people that are each one of these these types the, you, you want to look at their portfolios differently so you're going to load a builder up a lot on the front end of a project 
you're going to have an optimizer on the finished project and you're going to bring fixers in kind of in the middle when when things when you make run some some roadblocks or some snags that the original plan didn't quite account for and so it's it's just a way to utilize people's gifts and by the way if you're wondering i'm i'm a builder um because caleb and i are always different in everything that we do literally everything which helps because it makes things more interesting it helps it definitely does another takeaway that i had and i remember reading this in the book and i thought man this really revolutionizes things is his approach to brainstorming because again how we're different you're more of the idea person you're going to shoot out 60 ideas Mm -hmm. in a minute yep and i'm more of like okay i need time to think about this like the more time that i'm given with something like especially whenever it comes to brainstorming and thinking about ideas the better quality idea and this is so yeah this is really true about for both of us for, for both of us yeah Typically, Caleb will be really quiet, like in a brainstorm meeting or something like that. And then, like later, we'll be at lunch, and he says, "Well, we'll he'll say, well, what if we do this?" And it's, and it's a good idea. Um, yeah, very true. Yeah. So just thinking about those couple of things, and I mean, there's there's tons of great takeaways from this. That was a phenomenal episode. Yep. And let us know what you learned from this episode as well. You know, let us know. You know, maybe you're a builder or a fixer or an optimizer. Let us know which one you are, and you can hit us up on Twitter. And let us know how you hack that. Yes. Like, let us know how you Love hack it. that. Because yeah. we need help. Yeah, because we might not. We, hey, we're, we're, two, we're, we're two dudes living in Ohio. We might not know. Yep. Let us know on Twitter, handle at Learners Podcast, or hit us up on Instagram. You'll see some of our quotes and takeaways from this week's episode. And one of the best ways that you can show your appreciation for this podcast is by leaving us a rating and writing a review of the podcast. You know, this was an incredible conversation that we had with Todd Henry. So maybe you just want to let us know, hey, here's some of the things that I learned from this conversation. Here's some areas to where, you know, maybe you guys want to take tackle this topic. And we'd love to hear some topics or some ideas that you would love for us to talk about and people that you would love for us to talk about uh, with on the podcast as well. And also, we have some great episodes coming up with you all throughout the spring and so the best way that you can make sure that you don't miss any of those episodes is by subscribing to this podcast on whatever podcast player hit the subscribe button we are the only podcast you should listen to on normal speed too (laughs) thanks so much for listening to today's podcast i'm caleb mason i'm todd hicksonball and until next time keep learning and keep growing deuces y'all